Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, one of the areas uh, of investments in this these markets that continues to attract tremendous amounts of capital is private equity. And in a world where you've got a 10-year yielding 1.5%, um, people are looking for returns, looking for yield, and the asset class of private equity is one of those areas uh, that continues to generate superior returns. Glenn Mincy, he's a national sector leader for private equity at KPMG. He joins us here. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your maybe 30,000-foot view of the private equity space, and I'd love to get it in the context of pre-pandemic and maybe kind of where we are now. Give us your thoughts. Uh, thanks, Paul. Yeah, and you know, in the area of impact investing, specifically in ESG, I'd say that before the pandemic, you know, private equity had been active in responsible investing. But looking back, I think there was maybe the naive sentiment that COVID was going to stall or halt progress in the space. But the social impact of the pandemic really accelerated the industry's awareness of environmental and social issues. And it really pushed that intersection of ESG-related issues with financial return. And if you look at the drivers – oh, sorry, Paul um, – Go ahead. Uh, Glenn, this is uh, Kaylee. Nice to speak with you. So if we're, they're pushing more toward ESG, where specifically? Where are investments being made? Well, it's, you know, it, it, if we're talking about the new economy, you know, we're all looking at angels on the head of a pin to determine what that new economy is going to look like. And we often we often say that, you know, COVID, um, that after COVID, tech was a horizontal across all asset classes. And there's no question that impact investing in ESG are going to be integrated across the other asset classes as a horizontal in the future. And the, you know, the areas that, um, if you think about it, they're changing, you know, they're, they're, the PE funds are, they're actively looking at ESG and, and it's, it's, you know, a question for your energy funds, for example, do you shift your focus from traditional oil and gas or oil goods services to, you know, the so-called transition companies? companies that support transition to cleaner, more affordable energy like storage and renewables. Um, you know, you, you guys have looked at Oatly, for example, um, and other plant-based products, you know, that, that continue to attract mainstream investor attention. Um, and Oatly is actually, you know, it's doing well. And it's, it's a good example of uh, where the consumer is willing to pay more for your product, for the beneficial impact that it has on society. Glenn, give us a sense of kind of private equity. What percentage of their uh, invested funds are, are targeting ESG types of investments? It just doesn't seem like, I'm not even sure, A, how you define it, B, how you measure it. Um, give us a sense of how private equity is approaching that. Well, yeah, your point about measurement is actually a good one. 
the um, you know the perception mostly in the U.S. I guess is that private markets have been slow to pick up on ESG monitoring and reporting because they figured that you know getting that meaningful data from portfolio companies was a little too difficult, and they were skeptical. There was skepticism about whether the market was ready to accept the costs associated with measurement and reporting. But that information is really so vital to being able to determine not only where you stand, but what you need to do in the future. And let's let's face it, right? Doing the right thing, it's it's imprecise. You need verifiable metrics and data and a uniform standard. And there's and right now there isn't a uniform standard. There's no one standard to rule them all. But you know, this is an opportunity to, to change that. And at you know, as a percentage, each of the you know, the largest um, some of the some of the largest funds, you know, whether it's um, whether it's uh, TPG, Bain, KKR, Blackstone, Carlisle, Apollo, they all you know, over whether before COVID or, or over that period of time, they all really invested significantly. They you know they their funds are in excess of a billion dollars each, and they're putting that money to work. Right, they they have a lot of cash to deploy. Right, are there enough targets out there? Uh, you know, I think, and as I said, you know, before the pandemic, they've been active in responsible investing. And yeah, I'd, I'd say that I'd say almost every day you look and there is, you know, there, there's a $200 million investment here. There's a billion dollar investment there. Um, you know, Oatly was, was was a terrific example just in the past, what, two weeks of the IPO. Um, and it, yeah, so yeah, Kaylee, I'd, I'd say there are, there, there's a plethora of targets. Talk to us about returns, Glenn. ESG. I keep hearing how ESG provides superior returns. I, I, I'm just, I'm very skeptical. What are you finding in the PE space? <laughs> um, the, uh, the, and, yeah, I guess you're uh, you're touching on greenwashing, right, Paul? The, yes. Um, yes. And and here, let's 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 talk about the elephant in the room. Fair or not, it's probably accurate to say that PE has suffered in the past from reputational issues and not just in PE, but, but across all industries, there's a concern that companies are just going to do impact and ESG by press release, right? That companies will announce they're going to decarbonize and then you buy energy credits to fulfill that commitment and you haven't really changed anything. Um, but I think I'd say the PE really sees value here and the, and the desire to contribute to a better world is is certainly a motivator. That's truly a motivator. On a personal level, I know many of these heads of funds, and yep. it's really clear to me that each of them fervently and passionately believes this is a moment in time to to right. really make the world a better place. But they're in the business of making money. Yep. And what's made the PE industry successful in the past is the ability to anticipate right. future trends. But you know they need to yep. take they need to stay ahead of the game. All right, Glenn. We just have to leave it there just in case, uh, just because of time. But we really appreciate it. Glenn Mincy, National Sector Leader for Private Equity at KPMG. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, the metrics for vaccinations are have been very, very impressive here uh, in the United States. And now we're starting to see supply outstrip demand. And so we're starting to see um, you know, the U.S. sending extra vaccines globally, I think, beginning in August. And uh, that's a good thing. Let's bring in Lauren Sauer. She's associate professor of emergency medicine at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this radio and TV operation. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much again for joining us here. We always appreciate uh, getting your thoughts and input as we try to navigate through this pandemic and now through uh, the vaccines and the reopening. Talk to us about how important it is for the U.S. to be, uh, you know, kind of a leader here in exporting some of its vaccines globally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The WHO has a campaign, um, I believe it's called Nobody's Safe Till Everybody is Safe. And I think that really speaks to the fundamentals of why vaccine sharing is important. We have to make sure that we have global reach of these vaccinations, especially because, you know, we're such a easy to travel globe right now, right? Travel has never been easier. There's never been more people traveling. I mean, prior to the pandemic, of course, um, globalization continues to grow and we can, it continues to get easier and easier for more and more people to travel. Um, and so borders sort of become a thing of the past, especially when, you, when you're talking about infectious diseases like COVID. And so sharing vaccines creates global equity. It creates a healthier planet. And it also allows us to reopen globally quicker. I've been sitting here talking to Paul about my travel plans for the summer, and I, I'm going to Europe, but what a place that will let us in if we're vaccinated. But at the same time, I look over at the UK where the Delta variant cases have tripled. Should that make me worried, even if I'm fully vaccinated? I think you're going to want to pay attention to what happens with the science as you, you, know, you get closer to your travel. I, we're hearing that the vaccines are still very protective, um, and I think we'll see more about some of these new variants like the Delta variant um, and how, how the vaccines work against them. Vaccine is going to give you protection, so perhaps you'll get, if, if you were to get infected, you might get a more mild illness or have asymptomatic infection, but the vaccines are protective, and that is a really important point that, you know, when you're considering travel, you need to continue to remember. And again, the more people that get vaccinated in those countries, even if they see the variants um, in that space, that the protection grows exponentially, you know, so we see more and more people get vaccinated, we are more and more protected. Lauren, one of the other big issues is getting folks back to work. I mean, Kaylee's been coming. She's been here the whole time. I, this is my fifth week of coming back. And, uh, you know, we're starting to hear more and more companies, even uh, Goldman Sachs, is requiring employees to report their vaccination status. How do you think, what do you think is the most responsible way for companies? Or what have you heard or seen about bringing people back into the office? Yeah, I think it's been really mixed. I, I would love to see some more CDC guidance and stronger CDC guidance around office workplaces um, and bringing people back. I think they've done a lot of work in the last few months on various uh, areas that we needed guidance. And I think the workplace is a place where we could use some more information, some more you know, guidance as support. I do think we're going to see more and more places move towards what Goldman's doing. We're seeing a lot of um, higher education institutions doing this, a lot of academic medical centers doing this. Um, We're seeing more and more 
places move towards requiring vaccination to come back. Um, and, you know, I think there is arguments to be made on both sides of, of the coin for this. So we're not, we don't have an approved vaccine. We have some really great emergency use authorization vaccines with tons of clinical data now that show that they're safe and effective. Um, and I think we have vaccines moving towards approval. It'll be easier to require them when once approval happens. Uh, but we have to give sort of space for people to make choices. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. is what, you know, this country is built on is, is that choice piece and that autonomy. And so weighing those risks and benefits very carefully, along with the autonomy of individuals and their ability to decide, is going to be a really challenging space in the next few years. And we right. are going to look, we're going to need to look to the CDC and the federal government to provide guidance in this space. Lauren, a lot of companies are targeting September for their return to office, and there isn't so much worry about how the summer is going to go. People seem pretty optimistic, but then people talk about what could come in the fall and the winter. Are we going to have to send people home again? Yeah, I think it's really the hope that we don't. Um, I, it is definitely a possibility, I would say. We don't know what's going to happen as um, you know as we move back into fall. We're, we're still trying to understand the potential seasonality of this disease. Um, of this pathogen. And so looking towards the fall, this will be sort of our first real experience of what a season might look like with with a highly vaccinated population. So it's kind of a wait and see, which I know is not a particularly satisfying answer. Um, but I think the hope is that we get enough people vaccinated. Perhaps we develop boosters if necessary, um, but we build the foundation so that we can keep things safely open. And, th- and that is one of the goals of getting more and more people yep. vaccinated. Lauren, thank you so much uh, for joining us once again. We always appreciate your weekly uh, uh, discussions with us as we try to get more uh, educated on this pandemic and on the vaccines and on the reopening. Lauren Sauer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and of course, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. All right, folks, on the trading desk of Wall Street, this is how it works. You get a trader out there who's making money, He's got a hot hand, maybe a unique positioning, a unique strategy. You give that trader more capital to make more money for you, lest you risk losing that said trader to a hedge fund where they can generate even more returns. And that's what Credit Suisse was doing until it decided to pull back. And so, again, Credit Suisse back in the news, maybe not for the reasons it likes. Laura Benitez, Leverage Finance Markets reporter uh, for Bloomberg, joins us. Laura, give us the story at... What happened at Credit Suisse with one of its star traders? Well, we tracked the story of Hamza Lusinga, who rose to prominence very, very quickly from a very young age. Um, so he started off at the um, on the trading desk, in the high yield trading desk at Credit Suisse in, in London, and very quickly was promoted to head up that desk. Um, and as you said, had a very unique strategy, made a lot of money for the bank, and um, was just a very, very big name in the market. Um, he was a very attractive proposition for others as well, hence why he was big to Citadel. Uh, but obviously, you know, Credit Suisse wanted him back. Um, so there was a bit of a tug of war there, which was quite interesting at the end of last year and beginning of this year. However, the tables turned slightly in the last few months because of the situation at Credit Suisse at the moment and all the crises they're, they're facing. Um, they've had to dial back some risk and therefore, you know, Hams has had to basically go alone now. Would this have happened had the Archegos blow up not happened? Um, it's difficult to say because overall the strategy at the bank seems to be that they're just dialing back risk across the businesses, um, especially on the asset management side. So obviously, you know, Hamza's fund and what he was trading in was, um, in that time, very illiquid, very, very high risk. 
and therefore that would be a fund that would just be deemed too high risk for the bank to even consider at the moment. Um, without the other crises developing, it's very hard to say how that fund would have played out. I mean, as we know from our reporting, he was fundraising throughout January and February, um, and he was poised to launch that fund in March. So um, it's yeah, it remains to be seen how that would have gone otherwise. You know, it, it's really interesting, um, Laura. You know, I, again, I used to work at Credit Suisse and, and still know some folks there. And it just seems like they stumble from from one uh, issue to the next here. And now, you know, we were seeing some reporting earlier this week about offering retention bonuses to managing directors as well as some rank and file people. How difficult, you know, when you, when you look at a story like you're reporting on here with your team, it must be very difficult for them to attract talent if they can't you know, really reward them and, and allow their, their traders to take a certain amount of risk to generate a, a certain amount of return. What's going on at Credit Suisse? Absolutely. They're dealing with huge reputational risk right now. And on one hand, they have to preserve preserve that and they have to dial back their risk and make sure that everything is, you know, white than white in terms of their compliance strategies. On the other hand, like you said, they do have to retain talent. They've been leaking talent for the last three, four months, and they've been bringing in these retention bonuses to, to keep the very top and senior talent in place. Um, but like you said, it's very, very tricky for them to balance that. I think it is a balancing act going forward. Um, as we know from the story, Hamza was able to take on a huge amount of risk. He was given you know, up to $100 million, um, to trade on, and that was, that was just way, way above what other traders and his peers were doing. Um, and therefore, you know, that's one of the reasons why he was so successful he had an edge on everyone else because he was able to take you know twice the risk um so to be able to continue that performance while also reining back in the riskier parts of why that happened i think will be very interesting going forward so even if he's no longer there to take on that kind of risk is credit suisse going to allow allow other traders to do that going forward or are we looking at a huge dial back here uh, of the risks that they're willing to take it's difficult to say because they haven't actually communicated anything specifically about this, but it would be hard to um, understand, I think, you know, if, if that kind of risk appetite was to continue from here. Because like I said, he was the only trader on, you know, especially in Europe and London, who was able to take on that amount of risk. Mm. And the last few months has really, I think, demonstrated, um, you know, some of the pitfalls of that. I mean, even though he made a lot of money for the bank, there was also a huge risk attached and um, obviously, you know, there was a lot of controversy behind some of his techniques, too. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, um, it's definitely an interesting one going forward. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate this story. It's a fascinating uh, story about kind of the rise and somewhat of a fall of a star trader at Credit Suisse. And it's also a, a tale of, you know, pulling back on risk that we're seeing at certain firms, particularly at Credit Suisse, who can trying to navigate some reputational issues there. Laura Benitez, she's a leverage finance markets reporter for Bloomberg Editorial based in London. And, you know, it just kind of goes to that issue. We see it on Wall Street a lot. You, you know, a firm takes a hit, whether it's financial or reputational, and they pull back in on the risk profile uh, on their trading desks, on some of their investment banking operations uh, as they try to reassess their risk and their credit. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Steeple. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Looking at the markets again, a little bit of green on the screen. Not much going on, uh, but certainly we have markets at or near uh, all-time highs. And that's despite some concerns about inflation coming into this market that may prove a challenge for this economy in this market. Christopher Wolf, he's a chief investment officer at First Republic Private Wealth Management. They have about $219 billion in assets under management. Christopher joins us. Chris, thanks so much for, for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts on this inflation question, which is certainly an area, uh, area of debate for investors. Is it transitory, as Fed Chairman Powell would suggest, or is it something more that we need to be concerned about? What do you think? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, first, it's really hard to disagree with the Fed and all their PhD economists and how they think about <laughs> transitory. But I think the market's interpretation of transitory is what's going to matter. And I think the narrative is shifting a little bit, even though there's a lot of data to digest in the last couple of days. And in particular, what we saw for the, you know, the five print on CPI yesterday, um, I think the market's going to shift towards defining how long is transitory. The market started with a narrative that was Transitory means it'll be over in 2021, and I sense that's going to shift into 2022, and that's the problem. If the market thinks that right. inflation stays around longer, you get pressure, um, at least from the markets, on should the Fed be acting. And why would I believe that? Mostly because break-evens and inflation expectations for market participants are a lot higher than where the Fed says, so that's setting up this dynamic. Yeah, we're looking at something like 2.8% on the two-year break-even, of course, the shortest-term expectation yep. there. All that said, should I be looking at a 10-year yield higher than 1.46% right now? Uh, you know, in a normal world, yes. Uh, you know, you haven't seen this kind of um, extreme penalty phase for savers until you go back to like the 70s and early part of the 80s, and even then way beyond that into the 1800s. So why is this important? It's because there's some things going on that are likely to stay in place. The first we've just talked about with inflation, inflation sticky tends to be around a little bit longer than you want. And in order to get rid of it, you got to do harder things than you thought in the first place to get rid of it. The second piece, though, is that there's just a lot of cash around. The repo markets are full of it. Bank balance sheets are full of it. And you know what? They buy lots of treasuries. So the idea here is that the excess cash that's in the system is going to get put back into treasury markets. And that's a little disconnected from fundamentals. Normally, I would say that if you have inflation and economic growth in the four or five or six range, the 10-year bond should be about that as well. But we're not going there anytime soon as long as all this cash sitting on the sidelines needs to be put back into the Treasury market. So, uh, Chris, you know, a bunch of my business school buddies and I, we were chatting just recently about our kids. How are they going to generate the returns on their savings and on their investments that we've enjoyed since we graduated business school in 1991? And it's really, really tough to think of an environment where they can achieve what we were able to achieve as we look at our 401ks now. What are you suggesting to your clients here uh, as a you know longer term portfolio construction to generate returns that can support them, you know, 20, 30, 40 years hence? 
Yeah, I, you know, I'll use that phrase again. It's the extreme penalty phase for savers globally. Um, there's a lot of kind of economic work that goes into the how do we define, say, an excess of savings. The economists call it a savings glut and what happens with that. But I think the simple answer to your question, uh, Paul, is we're going to need to be much more thoughtful about how we invest. Savings is, is not the path forward, unfortunately. At least for the next 10 years, maybe more, it's going to be more about investing and choosing how you invest. And from our perspective, I think the big shift that's underway is, you know, a stay-at-home, stay-in-the-U.S.-only strategy has worked well in the last several years, but a more global strategy uh, is going to be, I think, more appropriate for investors over a longer period of time. That's item number one. Item number two is what's happening, which I think is a benefit for investors, is that private markets are now mirroring public markets very well. Public equity, private equity, public credit, private credit, public real estate, private real estate. You get the picture. There are so many opportunities in private markets, and they're democratizing reasonably quickly. Uh, that I think that opportunity set is going to become much more of the area that investors are going to explore and not just public markets. I think the last piece of this puzzle is um, we're going to look for diversification now to go beyond just traditional stocks, bonds, and alternatives. It's going to be global. It's going to be uh, structural. And that really means that we have to be focused just to bring this all back mm. on what is it clients want to do over what time period. That's really the key. What are their goals? So is a 60-40 dead? You know, I don't think it's dead. Uh, I do think that it has to be augmented. I think a 60-40 has worked out very well. This is an era of, I think, as Reinhardt and Rogoff called it, financial repression. That's the penalty phase for savers. Equities tend to do well in that environment. So we are in no way abandoning equities. But you're in a position of strength for many people. And that position of strength is usually the best time to act. And this action, from my perspective, looks like being more globally diversified and looking more at those alternatives, more private investments, more things that are interesting and new, even even things in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Oh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> right, my, my kids will be fired up about that, I know. All right, Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Christopher Wolf, he's a chief investment officer, First Republic Private Wealth Management. Again, that discussion uh, Kaylee, that I'm having with my kids, they're entering the or have entered the, the workforce, and I'm telling them to to invest in their 401ks, max out if they can. Uh, think about being, you know, all into stocks here at their age because you look at the fixed income markets. And what are you going to do? You're not going to do you're, much. You're not, not really going to get much, much of anything. You're not going to do. You're not going to get much of anything. So again, we really appreciate Christopher's comments there about you know how to invest for the long term. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.